0: i yeah. Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uproxx.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hayden. We have reached part seven of our Bruce Springsteen series, 20th Century Boss, where we are going through one of the iconic discographies in rock history and, of course, that the albums of Bruce Springsteen from the first half of his career from the early 70s up through the end of the 90s. And uh, this week, actually, you know, we're doing this episode. We've been doing two episodes a week, of course. We're doing Part 7 and Part 8. And uh, this is the end of our series, the final two parts. I think two of the more fascinating parts of this series, you know, we've talked about albums like Born to Run and The River, Darkness on the Edge of Town and Nebraska, and Born in the USA. Albums that are established as rock classics. And it's a lot of fun to revisit those records and to talk about them. But, you know, we know that these albums are great. These albums that we're talking about now in Part 7 and 8, their reputations are Not quite as settled, but um, I think we're going to make a good case for these records, um, at least being worth revisiting. You know, even if not all of them are masterpieces, uh, I think that they are maybe better than what are often recognized out there in the world. And we're going to be talking today about a record that is actually one, one of my very favorite Bruce Springsteen albums. And also, I think, maybe his most misunderstood, and that is Tunnel of Love. Released on October 9th, 1987, Tunnel of Love has a reputation among some Springsteen fans as his soft rock, baby boomer divorce record. Now, it's true that Tunnel of Love doesn't exactly rock, and it's definitely not guitar-heavy. Instead, it's dominated by synthesizers, drum machines, and Springsteen's weary, mature, grown-up croon. And it's undeniably a divorce record, though Bruce was still married to his first wife, the actress Julianne Phillips, when the album was released. Tunnel of Love, in a way, is a subconscious confessional record, revealing fractures in Bruce's relationship that he might not have even realized at the time was there. Now, if, if you care about lyrics, Tunnel of Love, to me, is every bit as gut-wrenching as Nebraska. And the music on the record suits the lyrics. This is an interest of record. And the contemplative music inevitably sends the listener inward, evoking a sleepless night filled with various shades of blue pouring through a bedroom window. The kind of bedroom window that a married person looks out as as he or she wonders why in the hell their spouse still isn't home at 2 a.m. Another reason why Tunnel of Love has been disparaged by some diehards is that it was Bruce's first album without some iteration of the E Street band. Now, you can hear the guys from the band here and there on the record. Danny Federici plays organ on four songs. Max Weinberg plays drums on three songs and adds percussion to several others. Nils Lofgren plays the memorable guitar solo on the title track. And if you listen very carefully, you might detect Clarence Clemens' backing vocals on the very dark final song, When You're Alone. But these guest spots, and that's what they are, this E Street band has been reduced to cameo status on Tunnel of Love, were really just concessions by Bruce, who at the time felt torn between his loyalty to the band and his desire to shake up the formula of his music in the wake of Born in the USA. Bruce originally recorded Tunnel of Love entirely by himself, and only allowed the members of the band to play on the record if they could come up with a better instrumental part than that which Bruce had recorded uh, by himself. This exercise, which the band derisively called Beat the Demo, was naturally stacked in Bruce's favor, because he liked the record that he made by himself. The fact is, Bruce wanted Tunnel of Love to sound exactly the way it does, which is utterly unlike the bar band sound he perfected with the East Street Band on the River and Born in the USA. Now, I've long been a defender of Tunnel of Love. In fact, if you look at the Wikipedia entry on this record... A good chunk of it is taken from something that I wrote in 2014 for the website Grantland in defense of this record. So if you'll allow me to quote myself, If Ingmar Bergman had been born in Freehold and cut his artistic teeth at the Stone Pony, he would have made this record in place of Scenes from a Marriage. Totally 80s production aside, this album represents the heaviest blues of Springsteen's career. The songs are about men and women who flirt, have sex, fall in love, get married, get bored, have sex with other people, and wind up stuck in the middle of that dark night from the second disc of The River. Now, I want to talk to someone who is as big of a fan of Tonal of Love as I am, so I called up John Darnielle. In the early 90s, John started writing and recording songs under the moniker of The Mountain Goats. Since then, he's earned a reputation as one of the great songwriters in indie rock, known for a literary style that, like Springsteen, touches both on autobiographical material and, more notably, fictional characters who are sketched out with flesh-and-blood authenticity. In 2017, John released his 16th Mountain Goats album, Goths. Also last year, he put out his second novel, Universal Harvester. John also co-hosts a podcast called I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. So John is clearly a very busy guy, but he still found time to sit down with me and talk about Tunnel of Love. And we had a great conversation about this record. So, without further ado, here is me and John, Darniel the Mountain Goats, talking about Tunnel of Love. I want to thank you for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate talking to you about Bruce here. Of and um, I approached you to talk about Tunnel of Love because of an interview that I found, or at least part of an interview, and I don't even know if you remember this, but I was on a Springsteen uh, Tumblr, I think, and it was a snippet of an interview where uh, the person was talking about how they were talking to you. I think they were emailing you about Springsteen albums and, The writer assumed that you would be a Nebraska fan because of your own past of home recording, recording on boomboxes. It seemed like a natural assumption to make. And then you said, and I'm just going to read your quote here. You said, "I, I prefer Tunnel of Love, actually. The songs are better and truer to me. I can't lie. I don't really care much for Nebraska. It's a genre exercise to my ears. Some good songs, but why should those in particular be the, quote, acoustic guitar songs? I'm not clear on that, so the album rings a little hollow for me. Whereas Tunnel of Love seems to come from a very deep and raw place. Now, do you remember saying that, and do you still feel that way now? Because I think this was like five well, years I ago. Well, I
1: mean, I don't. I don't. I usually don't remember much that I say in interviews. <laughs> so I don't know when that was, but but yeah, that sounds. It's still true. Like I think I probably I haven't listened to Nebraska in forever, right? Um, you know, I think it's it's. I remember it being fine, you know. But Tunnel of Love, I listened to it last night and a little bit just now. And it strikes me as, like, sort of, you know, uh, his, his rawest moment, really. You know, that like, because I think Bruce Springsteen as a storyteller, chiefly, right? So like when he is talking about the characters on The River, Born to Run, he knows those guys, but he's not that guy, right? He's been a musician for a very long time, right? And, he's, uh, and that's what he does, and that's what he's been doing. But he's telling stories of people that he grew up around, right? Tunnel of Love... These are stories directly out of his life. <laughs> These are stories that he's relating to because it hurts right now, and you can totally hear it in the writing. I think you know some of it's still storytelling, but it feels pretty naked to me. Uh, you know, I felt even even more so when I was listening to it last night, in part because I used to have the same sort of um, formal association of of a guy with an acoustic guitar is somehow more raw than a right. guy with a band. You know. But Tunnel of Love, I think musically, you know, the floaty sound of the synths and everything, that sort of lost, spectral, ghostly sound, pretty, pretty, it's a bleaker record (laughs) than Nebraska because he sounds scared, you know? He sounds like he's not quite sure how things are going to shake out for him.
0: And both albums were recorded largely by himself. I mean, people know that about Nebraska because, again, as you said, it's the sort of more, I guess, uh it's the thing that we associate with the guy being alone. It's a, it's a person with a guitar and playing harmonica. Sure. But like Tunnel of Love was largely recorded, I think, by himself. He played most of the instruments by himself. He was really delving into home recording away from the East Street Band at this point. So it is sort of the flip side in a lot of ways to Nebraska, even though I think that for a lot of people, or at least some people, they they often dismiss this record as like the Baby Boomer uh, divorce record. And Nebraska is held up as this like you know authentic, honest statement um, I mean, like when you said that, like when I read that quote from you, it really rang true for me because Tunnel of Love has always uh, been one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen albums. Especially as I, as I've gotten older and I've had more adult relationships and had my heart broken a couple of times, I feel like I, you know, it's it's it spoke to me. Uh, it speaks to me more and more as I get older. I find.
1: Yeah, no, it's a very. It's it strikes me as a you know it kind of is a guy alone in his studio. Thinking about how to make music out of what's going on in his life, sort of record, you know, which is like, I do, I I do wonder, I do know the story about how he recorded it, but it's always you got to set that in context. The guy who made Born in the USA a couple years ago, his home studio is a pretty good home studio. It's not, (laughs) it's not a four track, you know. If if it's a four track, it's a four track reel, and somebody else punching the buttons, I suspect. But, uh, but, but yeah, but it still has that very intimate feeling. I remember when it came out, you know, uh, because I hadn't been a big Born in the USA fan in part because you just could not escape Born in the USA if you were around then. It was like you, you were going to hear Bruce Springsteen pretty much daily for a very long time, you know. I mean, it was fine. But uh, but when this came out, you know, MTV pre- premiered the uh, Brilliant Disguise video, and I thought that, you know, <laughs> it, it took courage to say, this is my next look, right? This is what I'm doing now, you know. And in a sense, the other thing it does is even though, even like I say, the earlier records are largely, they're sort of, you know, like The River and uh, and Darkest Age Town and, and all that stuff. It's storytelling and stuff, but at the same time, he's sort of bringing his new listeners into this thing he already did, which was to tell stories that reach pretty deeply. And Whereas I'm Born in the USA was such a phenomenon that it's hard to say where people were connecting to it at, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm curious, before we you know, kind of talk about Tunnel of Love, I'm curious just about your overall feelings about Springsteen. You know, you've know, you already mentioned a couple other so records. I grew
1: up reactionary against Springsteen because I grew up in Southern California, and Robert Hilburn, the critic for the LA Times, uh, nobody ever made a record from 78 to God knows when without Hilburn comparing it negatively to Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> right? <laughs> and... And so for those of us who like a lot of outsider music, you know, it'd be like, man, my dude is not trying to tell stories about mill workers. So don't <laughs> fault him for not doing that, you know. But but he would always say, well, you know, it lacks the affirmative optimism of Bruce Springsteen. And so 99% of my friends grew up going, you know what, I'm sure that guy's music is fine, but I'm not into it. You know, And that was me for a long time. And I also felt that there was a, you know, sort of cultural imperative that no matter who you are, if you're into music, you're supposed to like Bruce Springsteen, and I always resent that. Right. But at the same time, it was actually Nebraska was the first one I gave a chance to, right? Because um, I was interested. And I had to say, well, you know, this is really good, especially Atlantic City and the, it was the Charlie Starkweather one that's on there. Um, Nebraska. Uh, just the title yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose there's another ballad, uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde one on there or something, but but I remember going, okay, well, I can't front, especially Atlantic City. I mean, what an amazing song that was. That was sort of, you know, that was sort of my moment with him. And it, and also the, um, you know, the river was big in Southern California in my high school. You would hear snippets of it everywhere, and it was super catchy, great stuff. Uh, I had friends who were giant Bruce fans going to the shows at the Forum when they'd be like three and a half hours long and stuff, but uh but yeah, he didn't come around until Nebraska. And of course, the Born in the USA was everywhere, right? But with Born in the USA, it'd be so everywhere that if you had any attitude about him, you would sort of be forced to confront it like with a song like I'm on Fire and go, that's really clever. That's really cool sounding. It sounds like a Neil Young tune, you know, and he's stripped things down so far, but there's still all this cool synthy production stuff going on up in the upper air of it and stuff. So after Born in the USA, I sort of had to concede that this guy's good. <laughs> so. And the Tunnel of Love was like, oh, and here's one for people like me who want something a little weirder and more intimate, you know?
0: Right. Well, let's go into the record here. Let's talk about side one. There's uh, on, on that side, you have Ink Got You, Tougher Than The Rest, All That Heaven Will Allow, Spare Parts, Cautious Man, and Walk Like a Man. What songs from that side jump out to you as you know, being stand-up? What's your pick? What's your, what's your big one from that side? Well... One song I wanted to talk about with you specifically was uh, "Cautious Man," which is a song I've always yeah, loved. Yeah,
1: that's the one. I was I was wondering. <laughs> okay, because I mean, a, there's uh, other it's ones. A very fine, fine song.
0: It's a great song, and w- what intrigues me about that, especially in relation to to your work, is that you know, Springsteen is a songwriter who will often write about characters, and in that song, he says in the first line, "Like my name is Bill Horton," you know, so it lays right. it out right away. And of course, that's something that that you do in your own songs. I, I feel like with, with you, like when you write a song, people know that about you, that you aren't necessarily writing about yourself. There might be elements of your life in your songs, but you are writing characters, you're writing stories. Whereas with Springsteen, it seems like the line is often blurred. You know, people Even if he's talking explicitly about characters, people always assume that uh, he's somehow talking about his own life. And I'm wondering, right. like, what your thoughts are on that. Is there something? Is, is that just because he's like so famous, and there's a cult of personality around him, or is there something about his songwriting or the way he performs that blurs that line for people?
1: Well, that's a very complex question. I mean, there's a lot. There's so much to say, and there's no definitive answer, right, um, for anybody in this. But I mean, for one thing, he's a guy who has always performed under his name, right? I don't know if it's his birth name or not, but uh, but I do know that you know when a guy, if I performed as John Darneal, people assume I'm trying to introduce you to John Darnell. Right? right? And they and they would not, and this one reason I'm the mountain Goat is I always wanted people to be sure I am telling stories, right? I'm, I'm a storyteller. Now, there's going to always be some of me in it that's the other, another big part of this is like you can't tell a story without putting yourself in it somehow. There's mm-hmm. no way, right? right? You can't, any story you tell comes out of you. It's sort of like if you try to bleed somebody else's blood type, you can't do it, right? You will bleed your blood type no matter what. And, uh, and when a person tells a story, whether it's about his own life or not, his truths go in there. Right? Mm-hmm. Even if he's trying to tell a story, you know, like, you know, about some evil person that he wants to, you'd also hate, you're going to wind up seeing that guy in there somehow or another, right? So, so when a guy, you know, when he writes The River, this guy's already playing stadiums, right? He's not, he is not working in any steel mills or anything like that but he knows enough about it and he also works every day he works right he knows what it's like to have to work and there's there's a lot of you know the question of how you are reflected in your work is a big one um but uh but wait what was he, how did you phrase the actual question because i i i i get off on tangents and then I get well
0: lost. just the idea that i mean in, and obviously i mean you've written songs that were Maybe more autobiographical than others, and that people maybe associate like yeah. with your own personal uh, life. But like I think with Springsteen, that line just gets blurred a lot. And
1: we- oh right. Well, so some of that. I mean, some of that is like, you know, I think it's blurred in part because because of the way he presents it, and it's part of that's part of his shtick. Now people don't. The word shtick is when you you don't want to understand a negative way. Everybody has their shtick. Right? Everybody has the way they present themselves. Because your actual self is always messier than what you're trying to show the world, right? It's like you, you, the real you is a mess in some ways, you know, and you sort of <laughs> right. you dress a certain way, and you talk a certain way to communicate, this is how I am. And when you're a performer, you dress that up even more, right? You say, well, if my voice has a little grit in it, I'm going to leave it there, right? Instead of training it out of myself, because that to me sounds a little more from the heart. That's a, uh, that's a, a thing that a lot of people have, right? That if somebody's hollering, they must mean it more, right? <laughs> Now, I don't think this is true after 20-something years of making records. I actually think the quieter a person gets, the more likely he is to be speaking from his gut. You right. know, uh, But for many audiences, a guy who hollers and yells and jumps up and down and does it for three and a half hours, they think he must mean it. This has got to be coming from deep inside of him because of how hard he's sweating and how much he's giving. And that might be true, but I think that's, an, that's a bias that people have. It's like There's the notion of authenticity, uh, of presenting yourself – there's a bunch of stuff that people, without having thought about it, say, look, if a guy does this, then that's real, right? Now, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. You know, you don't do something for three and a half hours every night unless you love it, you know, in some way. But at the same time, I do think Bruce has been has been sort of – he noticed early that, wow, when people think they're getting the real thing, they love it. And, and, and it makes the art resonate for them, right? But he is an artist. Like, he's – once you notice that, you make it you, – you do it again, so, so the people get what they like from what you do, and you have that connection with the people that you make music for. Because I do think, even once you get a small audience, you're in some way making music for and about them. Right? You're saying, Here's, you, have, you have heard me, let me tell you more of the stuff that worked for you, and we can, have, we can build this relationship.
0: Right. Well, and to bring it back to Cautious Man, and, and to sort of elaborate on what you were just talking about, you know, again, he does talk about, he mentions the character's name right at the start of the song, so you know he's talking about someone who's not him. And yet, I know he's talked about this song being one of the most autobiographical songs on the record that he feels like. He
1: yeah, felt, interesting. You know
0: that he's kind of writing about himself and how the guy in that song has a lot of the same character traits that he has.
1: Just the idea of. Uh, yeah, well, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, when I was in therapy in high school, I, I didn't have a therapist who was really into. Uh, Dream interpretation, he wasn't big on that, but I had had some dream I wanted to talk about, and he said, well, you know, this isn't the be-all and end-all of dream interpretation, but one way you can read a dream is to treat every character in it like he's you, right? (laughs) That was radical thinking for me, because, you know, I hadn't even thought about it, but of course it's true, your mind made all of them, right? So they're all you, (laughs) in in some way, right? And uh, and it's true with storytelling, any any character, especially when you inhabit a, a character, then you do what you imagine you would do in his shoes you, right. know? you are putting yourself in there uh and also the other thing and we know this from theater you know sometimes it's easier to tell your own truth through somebody else's face you know than to sit down and say well looks like we get a divorce i didn't see myself as being a guy who divorced after his most successful record it makes me feel kind of funny you know but it's like you can you put that in your diary and then you shape it into a story you know to share that with people because I do think his stuff has always had that element of sharing something from the inside, you know.
0: Well, it's interesting on this record because I feel like there's an ongoing theme in a lot of the songs of um, duplicity or the idea that you are one person in one context and another person in another and that you're, you're sort of at yeah, war Yeah, well, that's with a
1: very grown-up realization, too. You know, <laughs> he starts making music as a young man. But especially, I mean, imagine, imagine the business side of Bruce Springsteen's life in 1987 right? Imagine how complicated it is. Imagine how much of every day has to go into talking to people about business and planning and finding out, I mean, how many people are in his stage production when he tours Then He has to have 75 people, you know, reliable people that he knows he can work with and trust, you know, and know all of their schedules. He's got managers to deal with all this, but it's still something you have on your shoulders, Right. That's one self. It's not a very interesting self. There's a reason nobody writes songs about that stuff. You know? <laughs> but it's a big part of the self that you inhabit. And I think, uh, I think actually that's when your art really becomes your refuge. You know, when you go, well, all, the rest of this has become a job. But when I'm writing songs, I still get to, to be my best self. You know?
0: Right. What was it about Cautious Man that, uh, that, that stood out to you?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's, I, I come from that sort of stripped-down Tradition, even though that's really not me anymore. But when I hear it, it's got a real darkness to it. And I do think, you know, because so much of the album, you know, doesn't have character names, and you sort of hear him, you know, consciously being confessional in some way, right? And then you hear, oh, here's a character study. I bet you're going to bury the bones in that one. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like that's where, if a person says, oh, all these stories are true except for this one, then I'm looking at this one. You know what I mean?
0: Right. And, I mean, I guess you could say Spare Parts is another story song on this side of the record, although that song always seems a little
1: out of place to me on this record. Yeah, I know. I mean, the thing is, it does also, we don't know, maybe you do, but I don't know, and you never know which songs on a record have been sitting around for a while. Right. You know, which ones were written on a tour bus late one night and seemed good, and now I'm making a new record and I've got nine songs and I need another one. You know, you can pull that one out and throw that in here, and maybe it fits, and maybe it does. You know, Um you never know with things like that, right? Uh so I don't know and the other thing is like even an honest person, an honest songwriter, he'll lie to you about that. <laughs> he <They> won't <laughs> usually tell you, Oh yeah, no, that that was that was left over from the river. I was working so hard on the river that I had all these songs left over, you know. Um so I wonder whether it's a leftover from, from elsewhere that in terms of its mood felt like it fit in with the others and then it stands out in that way. That's a possibility, you know. Um, but it's also, it's also true that, you know, he's, he's working in a somewhat more familiar mode than I think, you know, Brilliant Disguise to me, that's a huge leap for him, like formally in terms of the way the song works. And, uh, you know, everything about it is, is different from anything on the album that preceded it, you know?
0: Right. And that seems like a really, yeah, musically it's, it's, it's a big departure and just, uh. The, uh, the lyrical perspective in that, like you can't imagine that that, that song appearing on any other record. Like it, he could only have... Yeah, no, it's,
1: I mean it's, it really was for me. Like I already was, you know, I was open to liking more Bruce Springsteen, but hearing the song on that brilliant, brilliant video, uh, you know, it was just like, wow, this is a pretty intense thing for a guy who's had a lot of success to do. You know, it's really, you don't have to do that. I don't, you know, it, the other thing is like, I think this album was fairly successful, but I'm a guy who, if I hear a record and I go, oh, you don't care whether this one sells as well as your last one did, then I automatically have some love for that record. You know, if it's made by somebody who could have very easily said, you know, well, guess what? <laughs> you love the big, the big stadium record. And, I mean, who doesn't think he could have made a Born in the USA too and just cashed in, you know, totally could have done that, you know. And instead, he kept digging. And that's the mark of a real artist is to say, well, what, what do I do next instead of now that I have a gig, how do I keep it up?
0: circling back to the brilliant disguise video like for those who haven't seen it if I remember correctly it's a black and white video and he's sitting like at a kitchen table playing the
1: guitar is, is he it black sing- and white or is it color I forget I thought it was
0: I remember being black and white it could be wrong I haven't seen it in a while but my memory is he actually singing live in that video
1: or so he's it's a single continuous shot it just is all it is is a long zoom on his face as he sings and plays the song right I don't think it's actually live I think he's lip-syncing and and and, and playing you know playing guitar that you're not hearing but it's just a very long zoom into the face of a guy singing this song about not feeling like he's not sure that his partner is being authentic with him, not, not being certain that real communication is taking place, which is a, a, such a deep, grown-up thing to be worrying about. You know, well, it's like,
0: and I wonder, too, like, it obviously fits in the context of the record. I wonder, too... If, when you make a video like that and you put that out as a single, if you're also saying something to your to your audience that you know for the last three years I've been the biggest rock star on the planet, and uh-huh. I have this image that is you know been created in part by this music channel here but I'm not necessarily that guy you know it I feel like maybe the brilliant disguise is also maybe a message to the audience
1: that is a super interesting read. I never even thought about that that's a that's a good That's the thing is you assume somebody like Springsteen. Or early Dylan, I mean, we know how what early Dylan did with this, but like anybody whose audience feels like they know him, there's a reflexive desire to say to them, look, yes, you know the part of me that I share and that we have fun with, but that is not the same as knowing me, and that's healthy, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, and, and that's got to be a lot of pressure when every, you know, when literally millions of working men and women in the U.S. feel like, man, you know who's just like me is Bruce Springsteen, you know, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good read, I
0: think. Well, I remember, you know, Phoebe Bridgers was on this podcast talking about Nebraska in our Nebraska episode, and she brought up this David Bowie quote where someone asked Bowie, you know, words to the effect of, like, you're always someone different on stage, you're never yourself. And Bowie said back, you know, if you think Bruce Springsteen is who he is on stage, then you have another thing <laughs> coming, you know. It's kind of like what we're talking about, this idea that, yeah, that he's not a guy that works in the mill, he's not an average you know, working class guy, he's a, you know, he was always an artist and then he became a multimillionaire rock star after that. Um, but which
1: isn't, it's important to say though, which isn't to say there's anything fraudulent or weird about that. Exactly. Right? It's not, that's what artists do. Artists inhabit other people's skins. And if they are good at it, then other people go, you may never have worked a day in the mill in your life, but you just spoke the truth of somebody who works there every day, right? It's like, that's what artists do. I think, I mean, I, I have a whole shtick about this, but like, I think people understood that about art a lot better in the past than they do after the 20th century starts governing stuff in terms of seeing pictures of people and seeing moving images. Then this notion that you are hearing somebody, you know, sing directly from his heart, and and, you know, the whole problem of authenticity, I think, becomes a much bigger deal in the 20th century than it used to be in art, where, you know, nobody expected Charles Dickens to have lived any kind of life than the one he lived, but he told very true-sounding stories about all kinds of different people. Everybody believes them. You know, everybody bought into them. But I think, I think in the in the visual age, you know, starting sometime in America after the fifties, this notion of of a person needing to present themselves exactly as they are, you know, becomes this weird pernicious thing. And it's still, it's still very, you know, it, it, people still feel that way a lot of the time. Um, but I think, yeah, it's like Springsteen. <laughs> that Bowie knowing that is great because Bowie, of course putting on a different face every time he makes a
0: record. Well, and I feel like, you know, with, with, with Springsteen, even on different records, like, he sings differently at times, and it's almost like he's an actor performing a role. Like, in my mind, I feel like on some of his records, because his albums are so cinematic, that it's like he's Martin, yeah. he's Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro at the same time, that he's, like, directing yeah, a movie. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, do you feel like with because you're creating these worlds on your own records, do you feel like there's an element of acting when you're performing those songs?
1: Oh, always. But I mean yeah, I mean the thing is with the Mountain Goats I'm always wanting to 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 look right at the at the axis of that question. It's like how how much of me can I actually give and still be still be doing something with artifice, right? I mean like, you know, of, like you know that story people tell about Jack Kerouac writing the entire draft of On the Road on a single roll of paper, right? <laughs> right. We know that that is not the draft that actually was published, right? right. Um, <laughs> but people like that idea. That it's spilled out of him as is. It's, I don't know why. Like people like that idea. Why, why people think the first look has something special about it? You know, because um, we know, you know, from when from when the uh, you know the the Darkness in the Edge of Town box set comes out, we we know exactly how hard you know. Bruce Springsteen works to make it sound like he wasn't putting any extra work into it, you know, (laughs) like it takes a lot of work to make something sound like it just came directly out of your gut, you know? Um, but I think, I think people, for some reason, people want that, but I don't think, I don't think that's on Bruce Springsteen. I don't think he's ever, you know, I don't think he did any extra work to try and persuade people that he was anything but an artist, you know, just a good one. If you're a good one, people buy it, you know? And, and if people have a good understanding of art, they understand that, you are presenting something for them to share in a sort of dream, you know, but they don't actually know you as you are, you know, pacing around in an office talking barefoot talking on a phone or whatever. You
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes on May 8th and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. I think you're right about you know people projecting things onto his records, and he's not necessarily responsible for that. Although I do wonder, like with Nebraska, there does seem to be like a pretty conscious effort to say, "I'm not making a superstar record. I'm making an intimate acoustic record," and maybe you should perceive it in a different
1: way because of that. You well, know? but I mean, but he was doing it after Woody Guthrie, who's another self-mythologizing figure, right? I mean, the Woody <laughs> right. Guthrie, uh, Woody Guthrie is a guy who you know is. He comes closer than a lot of people to, to showing you exactly who he is, You know, and he wanted to do that. But here's the thing that is tricky about that. I, I really am sympathetic to this notion that listeners and viewers have, that they want the real thing from somebody. Right? I'm sympathetic enough to it that I used to release a bunch of first takes. You know, it's like stuff exactly that came out of me. I still do this. There was a seven-inch a couple of records ago that was tracked live, and then to half track and then press directly to lay it's from that so you were getting an actual live recording on the record closer than you ever get most people do some sort of mixing or EQing and we did nothing so it was a side and b side were exactly what happened in the studio live and i was pretty stoked about it I, mean, I have this i share the same weird desire for you know for a warts and all presentation you know even though most people they get too many warts they get tired of it <laughs> They want something that's good you know and but that feels like it came directly out of somebody. I think Nebraska is interesting because I think he's wrestling with that very question. That you want, you want that authentic feeling. We all want it to some extent. Not everybody. I mean, there's plenty of I actually. Know a lot of people who prefer strong artifice, Roxy music. You know, like people will make that case. But a lot of people, especially Americans, want uh, want to feel that. And it's an interesting question for an artist, because I think Bruce Springsteen, obviously, like he knows there's something special in that feeling when people feel like they're getting something real and stripped, you know, and and and, the, and that came from the gut. They know they like that. And I think he is attracted to that, too, because we all are to some extent. You know, right. But it's always going to be more complicated than that. Well,
0: you know, what's fascinating to me about the sound of Tunnel of Love, because it's sort of the flip side of the Nebraska thing, where it sounds like a very 80s record and for a long time I feel like yeah that was
1: the one thing I was hoping you would want to talk about because like I listened to it last night and excuse me people always say that but like the last 10 years or so of me making music has largely been about me shedding biases and saying you know like some people you know you remember Aerosmith used to put no synths on their records and like this (laughs) this bias about synthesizers being too too artificial and whenever I have a bias like that at some point I want to go why don't you like that what is it about that what are your assumptions here? Well, and the sound of the synth on Tunnel of Love, when I listen to them now, they sound yearning and emotional, but they also sound a little lost. You know, the, the right. notes bleed into one another in a way that acoustic guitars and saxophones don't, right? I mean, they, I mean you can do anything with any instrument, but, but the synth that he's using, which I suspect is a fair light, I don't know, but, um, but the, the synth tones that, that, that they're choosing, they have this dreamy feel that really, really adds to the sadness of the record that makes things feel a little more lost, a little dreamier, a little a little less certain, you know, whereas if you listen to Darkness and Asia Town, every song on that record is very certain about how it means to be. You know, it's, right. it's a rock and roll record. Everything presents to you exactly as it is. You know, and you hear it, and you know how you're supposed to feel when you hear it, you know. Um, I mean, there's no question. You know which ones are supposed to be triumphant, and which ones are scared, and which ones are sad, and so on. And uh, and in Tunnel of Love, there's really not one song that says to you, this one's mainly sad, you know. It's like they're all kind of sad. They also are all, they're all kind of, a lot of things. And I think that's what the synth, what what the tonal palette is about, is about, you know, embracing a sort of floating uncertainty.
0: I agree with all of that. And I think also what's wild about this record is that, you know, again, for a long time, people dismissed it as dated. And in fact, I think in the last five or 10 years, a lot of the things that are on this record have kind of become, have come back into vogue, at least in a lot of like sort of indie rock circles. So in a way, it sounds... It sounded dated for about twenty-five years, and then for like the last five years, it sounds like weirdly contemporary. Like I feel like this is the record. Yeah, no, that
1: happens in music so much that it's, it's one reason why you should never really think about whether something is going to age well or not. Right. Because everything, will, you know, if you if you're putting enough thought and care into your work, and it sounds really good to you when you're finishing it, it's fairly rare that that you're going to come with something that you know when when it's you know, when when styles change, that it will be out of fashion forever. Not entirely true. If you listen to, you know, Knee Deep in the Hoopla <laughs> by <But> Jefferson <laughs> Starship, that thing has dated, it will probably not come back around. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, there are there are exceptions to that. There's uh, uh, One really amazing example to me is, um, what's a Steve Winwood song? Um, if you see a chance, take it. What's yeah. call it called? It's from Mark of a Diver. I think um, it's called When You See a Chance. The, the, is that what it's called? Yeah. It's like, uh, but like the synth solo on that thing, we were listening to it in the car, and John Worcester said, "It's like this sound will never age, and it really sounds like so exactly in its historical moment. Right. <laughs> it's like it just sounds like, yeah, we got this cool new synth. Let's check it out. But, but I mean, did... that's what's you know, it's what's beautiful in soul music. In soul music, they always for the always in the form. If there's a new instrument, they're always trying it out first. Listen to Quincy Jones records, man. Quincy Jones like. <laughs> there's a thin clavier, cool, let's use that, right? And it's like, sometimes when the recording is, is you know, it, it has everything right, it ages well, and other times it doesn't, but you can't be thinking about that when you're making a record. You just have to think about where you're at right now.
0: Right, right. And I would say, too, that like a song like Tougher Than The Rest, which is another song I just wanted to mention quick from side yeah, one. Yeah, a good one, yeah. Which, you know, you have the synth, you have Max Weinberg's drums, and then you have that great harmonica solo at the end. I I wonder what
1: it was like for the band to be playing on this one because it's so it's so different. You know, it's like there's so much especially if you look at Born in the USA before it, you know, there's this giant going for it vibe, right? And this is a very it's not you know, Neil Young was also playing around with a lot of stripping back in the early eighties. You know, it's not quite to that level, but it is a lot of, let's see if we can play less and mean more. You well,
0: know? What what happened on this record is that you know Bruce made all of these demos that were basically completed, and then he decided that, oh, maybe I should have the band play on it. So he did this thing where it was called Beat the Demo, where he would say, right. can you come up with a better drum part or a better guitar part? And if they did, he would use that, but then... If they didn't, he would just use his demo, and I think he largely used the demo like like there's no like, like Clarence, Clarence Clemens sings background on like one song, and that's all he's on i, I think it's mainly Max Weinberg and there's like maybe like one Gary talent bass line on the record you know it's like they, I'm
1: laughing because in my band we have arguments I'm not like a i'm i'm I mean I'm probably a strong personality, but I'm not the kind of guy to you know i I'm always wanting. To to make it make things group decisions when possible, but at the same time I like I get pretty stuck in my ideas and have to be talked out of stuff. And one thing for years and years, like you know, for over a decade, it's like we'll be doing something and people say, well, how do you like how do you like it, JD? I, go, I don't know. I, I, you know, I just when I made the demo, I sort of and they'll <laughs> be like, John, it's never going to be the demo. When we play it together, it's going to be something different. So you have to say. Is it good like this? Not is it the demo? <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like that's my vibe forever. Is always like I listen to the demos. And go, I like my demo. I like it pretty good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think Bruce at this point was like this was also the divorce record from the East Street Band. I think he was like I I, mm. I I need to get you know he did the tour with them and then he then he broke them up after that tour. But it seemed like he was so already he's been on
1: tour with them for over a decade at this, to this point, right? I mean, yeah, like been yeah. Like, I mean that's the thing is like I don't that guy. People don't, people, maybe people do, but like, the, 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 touring is hard on a person, period. It's also fun. It's the best job you can have, and I'm not saying that anybody who gets to make a living off music gets to complain, oh, I have to tour. It's like, but you do get to complain because it's your job, and it kind of <laughs> makes you crazy. It makes you real crazy because you can't relate to people anymore. You sure can't tell people that you had a hard day at work because they're all going to say, oh, we're, I had a guy berate me for eight hours, you know, and I couldn't say shit to him because he's my boss. Right, tell me about your bad day, guy with a lot of money. You know, and I get that. It's like, so you always want to be careful about it. But at the same time, you don't get days off as a musician. Uh, even if you're a big successful one, your weekends, your, your, your phone's on, and people are going to get in touch with you. And the more successful you are, the harder you're probably having to work. Now, you get paid really well for it. So, again, I'm not saying the, to- the terrible hard life of Bruce Springsteen, right? But at the same time, it has its, its own job stresses that are kind of a little lonelier because fewer people can relate to them. You know? and so, when, I, when I think he so said, I, too, that know, he didn't want...
0: And I think he also felt like, right. I, I don't want to have to write a sax part in this song if I don't want to, or I don't want to have to argue, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I think he felt that pressure of, I have a band that I have to satisfy. And I think he was like, I don't want to yeah. have to do that anymore. I just want to do what I That's like.
1: You know, the Psychedelic Furs, uh, on their first two albums, had a sax player named Duncan Kilburn, and his songs kind of built the sound of the band. I mean, the sound, the, the band sounded a lot of ways, but Duncan's sax parts were absolutely spectacular. He is the sound of the Pretty in Pink riff, right? And... uh And he was the guy, and also into like a train, and also India, all these amazing psychedelic first songs. And then Duncan was gone, right? And a lot of us who had loved this band was like, really, that's your sound? And Richard Butler said, you know, Duncan wanted to play on every song. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) and it is, if you have a guy who plays tenor sax, and that's all he does, Like, we have a sax guy, but he also plays Barry, and he also plays flute, and he also plays piano, and he also plays guitar, so he moves around a lot. Asking for a big sax riff on every song, that's asking a lot of the listener after a decade, yeah. Right.
0: Well, let's talk about Side 2, because this is one of my favorite sides on any Bruce Springsteen yeah, album. Yeah, no, it's
1: better than Side 1, which is, just, you know, you can't... Record labels don't like it when you do that. Um, but but, uh, but I don't think... I mean, I think these days... Well, with him, obviously, he gets to do what he likes, but uh, but I mean, he would have a lot more pushback than I suspect he got... Uh, putting brilliant disguise toward the end of the
0: second side right well because you got tunnel of love uh, number one you got two faces brilliant disguise one step up when you're alone valentine's day and we've we've already talked about brilliant disguise i think that's one of the great bruce springsteen songs it sounds like you agree with that
1: oh yeah yeah
0: and then i also want to talk about um i mean let's say this like for you like what else uh, jumps out on that side
1: Well, I mean, the title track, right? The title track is really, really, you know, I think, uh, I think it's totally normal and healthy to listen to a title track and go, I'm supposed to assign this one a little extra weight. You know, it's the (laughs) one we've been in the album after. So when you name the album after a song, you're pointing the listener in that direction. You're saying, here, if you're trying to find out what this album is about, start here, you know, and, uh, and it's a really nice one. And it's also what's kind of cool about Tunnel of Love is that it is an up tempo. You know, brilliant disguises mid-tempo. It could be all kinds of things. up-tempo. Bruce Springsteen, generally, you're expecting to hear about, you know, oh, uh, people who are triumphing in some way, even if they're not going to triumph, people who are sort of seizing the moment of their lives and wishing for more. You know, if they're not getting what they want out of life, they're 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 imagining a better one for themselves, right? That's not what Tunnel of Love is about, right? But it's got this hot beat. It's really nice, you know. It's a really it's a song that many people, I think, would say I'm saving this tune for my uh, for for some of the people are gonna pump their fists to more. I don't think people pump their fists to Tunnel of Love. It's a sad <laughs> and depressing song about not knowing where you are, you know. And uh, and that's. That's what I like, I like ambiguities, you know, and uh, I didn't, that's I think one reason I didn't connect that much with earlier Springsteen. I mean, now I, as a, when I became a songwriter, then you listen to Bruce Springsteen you go, oh, he's extraordinarily good at songwriting, you know. But in terms of the connection, I like somebody who has ambiguities. I like somebody who who embraces sort of the moment of, of neither the character nor the author knowing exactly how he's supposed to feel. And that's what I hear of that song.
0: And I really love, I feel like the songs on this side Really, kind of connect to each other. Like, there's a real thread that goes from Tunnel of Love through Valentine's Day. Where in Tunnel of Love, he's yeah, talking, you well know, especially
1: to, I, just, I always think in terms of combos, like two up, two ups, and one step up is after Brilliant Disguise, and right. that's a really nice combo. And it's also, I mean, it's another single if I remember correctly, right? Um, yeah. So, so it's a pretty amazing thing to do to put to put like all the ones with the big hooks on the second side, and all they have Willow has a nice hook, but. Uh, but I mean, one step up. I don't know how the label. You know, I, I have to assume there was a meeting where that somebody said, "Can we convince him to put that on the A side?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what blows my mind about that song is that you know he's writing. It's a character song, but he's writing about infidelity. You know, the, the, he's having yeah. wandering eyes in a bar, and the woman that he left his wife for is singing backup on that song. Like, yeah, that's
1: wild. do we? But we do. Do we know for sure? I'm always suspicious of stories like that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know I, mean? It's,
0: I was just reading, I was, I was brushing up on Bruce, and I read this biography, the, the Peter Ames Carlin book, and it talks about how, like, when Tunnel of Love came out, he was still with his wife uh, at the time, Julian Phillips. And w- right. when he was on tour, there, I think they were in Italy, uh, some paparazzi caught Bruce and Patty on, a, on like, a hotel patio, like, snuggling and took photos Uh, of them like canoodling and stuff. And then after that, he put out the statement saying that my wife and I have separated. And so I don't know exactly what the timeline was. If he like left, if they were already together before Julianne knew or, or what the case was, but, uh, there was something going on. And I, there's, you know, you read Springsteen's books and like people talk about how there was like chemistry between him and Patty going back to like the born in the USA period and all of that. Um, so that that timeline's always going to be a little hazy, I think,
1: but... Well, making music together is so intimate is the other thing is, like, there's there's that, you know, if you have been on stage every night together, and he was, I, I assume, I don't know this, but, like, he, he feels like a hundred dates a year guy to me. Like, I don't know how big his tours were, but I assume they were long uh, and went all over the world, right? And the the bonds you form with your band and anybody in that band on those tours are hard to explain to the outside world. It's, it's very intense. You get to know each other extraordinarily well.
0: Right, it, I want to bring up this other song too, that is kind of a, I guess a, a a Springsteen deep cut, not talked about too much, but it's the last song on the record, which is Valentine's Day, and right. um, I was listening to it on just on the way to the studio here to talk to you, and it made me think of that song "Wreck on the Highway" from the River, which is a song where you know it's about this guy, he's driving home, he sees this guy dying, you know, dying on the side of the road, and he goes home, and it kind of makes him. Feel gratitude for uh, his girlfriend or wife. You know, it, it makes him realize that like everything, everything ends at some point. You know, there's a feeling of mortality there that you're going to lose yeah, well, whatever the you Atlantic get.
1: Yeah, Atlantic City, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. And but like Valentine's Day has a very similar structure. It's, at the beginning, it's it's this guy driving, and he goes home to to his woman, and but there's not that feeling of gratitude. There's this feeling that he's actually going to end up alone because like the woman yeah. that he's with, it's. Um, it's not. It, it's not in a good. It's not in a good place. It's like almost a sequel to "Wreck on the Highway" that is somehow more despairing than that song. Like that song's pretty. Well, it's, sad. Also,
1: it's got no chorus, right? It's got no chorus, which is like a for a for a Bruce Springsteen guy, for the guy who for the guy who just yelled "Born in the USA" on an average of eighteen times a night for the last three years. <laughs> you know, songs without choruses. Again, I'm going. What is so interesting in this song to you that you would leave it without a chorus, right? Without without something for the people to, to sing along with, is like pretty... And then tuck it at the end of your album, because I, I always look at last songs on the record and assume that they have extra weight.
0: Right. Exactly. And, I, I mean, not having a chorus, it seems like a deliberate thing, that, like, I'm not even going to give you the pleasure of a chorus in this song. This song is yeah, so painful, yeah. no, you're not going to get any hooks. It's just, like, pure darkness. No relief.
1: You know, it's a very no-relief song. It's a very intense number. Um, and uh, and it's, <laughs> to call at Valentine's Day... A lot of people do that. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a. There's a. Uh, 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 Steve Earle has a Valentine's Day song too. Um, I sort of feel like you know it's it's kind of his emo number. <laughs> He's like sort of doing a contrast that's so profoundly obvious and yet really works in context. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, bleak, bleak song, the cold river the bitterness. <laughs> yeah. Stuff, you know? um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's it's interesting stuff to 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 tuck that at the end of the album. And you wonder, I, you do you wonder when? When is that lyric from? Because I do think there are probably little bits in here that have been sitting around in the notebook for a while that maybe do come from you know the midst of an affair or or long nights on a bus thinking about stuff. You
0: know. Right. Right. And how you know you know because I feel like people always assume or they remember that he was al- his marriage had already ended when this record came out and it hadn't ended yet. So I, I yeah I, yeah I, I, I didn't read any contemporary record reviews, I don't know if people were speculating already that he might be in trouble romantically. I think there's like, there's people like, friends of his, I think, heard the record and felt that, but. um,
1: Yeah, well, the other thing is you always got to remember, by the time you hear any of these songs come out, they're at least a year old, right? right. Like it doesn't, records especially, the bigger the artist is back in those days, the longer it takes you to set up a record. You have to talk to the radio people, you have to plan the tour, you have to do all this stuff, right? Right. So the record was probably, I don't know the dates, but, you know, I assume that the songs were written well over a year ago, right? And uh, and the whole thing was tracked nine months to a year before it hits the street.
0: Yeah. some. And I think that was also true of, like, Blood on the Tracks. I think that record came out before Dylan's marriage ended. It was just, you know. Yeah,
1: although with with that record, I know Dylan was a guy who, he had so much, so much pull at that point that he could get records done quicker right. but no but he did that record twice he did a version in minnesota right right that i think i think they released some of that but he did a did the whole record right? <laughs> the thing is musicians like me go wow man what must it be like to have <laughs> enough money in the budget to go into the studio with killer musicians right hash out the whole thing in 10 days, have it pressed up on an acetate, and listen to it and go, nah, I got a better one in me. Let's do it in New York. (laughs) That's that's really, you know, it's like a dream.
0: (laughs) Well, John, I'm glad that we had the chance to talk about Tunnel of Love. I feel like this record uh, has a pretty good reputation now, but it could probably have a better reputation. It still seems like a little undervalued. In the Bruce
1: Yeah, no, it's when I was looking around last night, seeing what do people say about it? They, all, they. They talk about the synths, and it's so weird to me that that, that stigma still persists with synthesizers. The idea that right. you know when people say cheesy synths, and I listen to these synths, I go, "This is a beautiful use of a synthesizer. This is really, you know, I mean, again, Springsteen's so lyrics forward and so persona forward that to be to be draping things in in tones that tell you as much of the story as the lyric does, it's a bold move. You know, it's like it's a I feel like you would been listening to some Roxy music records and noticing the work the synth does on Avalon. You right. Know? Like that. The, the synth is telling you as much about the mood as Brian Ferry is, you know.
0: I think it definitely lends itself to being more of a mood record or a more introspective record where you're supposed to put yeah, it on. Yeah, no, it's a
1: great record to sit down alone with, which is not what you usually use your Springsteen <laughs> records for prior to this. <laughs>
0: so. Definitely. Well, John, it was such a pleasure talking with you about this. I Thank you so much for, uh, for doing it with
1: yeah, me. Yeah, a real honor. Thank you so much.
0: All right, take care. All right, that was me. And John, getting into it about Tunnel of Love, great conversation about that record. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode and this installment of 20th Century Boss. I want to do a shout out to Derek Madden, the man who puts all our episodes together. Thank you, Derek. I also want to do a shout out to Josh Copperman, who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And of course, I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast and supporting what we do. Um, you know, we wouldn't have a podcast if we didn't have listeners. It would just be me and Derek in a studio by ourselves talking about records. And while that would be fun, it would eventually get boring after a while. So thank you for being such a great audience, engaging with the podcast, telling other people about the podcast in conversation or on Facebook, or Twitter, or leaving reviews of the podcast on iTunes. Seriously, these are the things that have enabled this podcast to grow in the past two years into a, a podcast with a pretty big audience. So, so thank you for helping us grow and uh, for being so great. We have another episode up this week. It's part eight, the final part of our 20th Century Boss series. So once you're done with this episode, you're going to want to head over there and listen to the electrifying conclusion of our Springsteen series so thanks again guys we will uh, talk to you again next week
1: on the Westwood One Podcast Network